Hello fellow humans and thank you for joining me on this episode of ASM Murder, the true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. On this episode, we explore the Katie Cabin Murders. Upon first hearing of this particular murder, my first thought was that it was going to follow some cheesy cabin murder movie scenario. If only that were so. Not far into reading about this case, I discovered that this was so much worse. Combine all the alleged cover-ups and all the possibilities of just who could have done this, and you have what could only be described briefly as an absolute nightmare. I can't even compare this to a horror movie because horror movies have, for the most part, linear stories and clear antagonists. Not in this case. I mean, aren't the good guys supposed to win? Isn't good supposed to triumph over evil? Aren't we supposed to get a satisfying ending? Not today. Welcome to ASM Murder, a true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. I'm your host, The Guru, and if asked, I'll go ahead and let you know that I prefer wrestling and pudding over wrestling and jello. Thank you for asking. Content warning. This episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences with mention and or description of crime scenes and graphic violence. Listener discretion is therefore advised. In the late spring of 1981, a small mountain community was rocked by a mass murder in the middle of the night. A mother and two children were slaughtered in their cabin. Another child went missing for years and was only discovered when her skull was found over 60 miles from the initial crime scene. The 14-year-old daughter of the slain mother entered the cabin expecting to greet her family for breakfast. Instead, she was met with the horrific sight of her family bound, bludgeoned, bloody, and murdered. Those responsible for the murders are still unknown. Who killed Sue Sharp, John Sharp? Tina Sharp, and Dana Wingate? And why were three more children, Rick Sharp, Greg Sharp, and Justin Smart, left unharmed in the same cabin? What happened in cabin 28? When the police arrived on the scene the morning of April 12th, they found the body of 15-year-old John Sharp. His throat was slit, and his arms and legs were bound with medical tape and electrical cord. It appeared as if his head was beaten with a hammer, in addition to withstanding multiple stab wounds. His mother, Sue, was found dead on the couch. Her arms and legs were bound with electrical cord and medical tape just like her son's, but her circumstances were vastly different. She was found nude from the waist down. Her underwear was stuffed into her mouth beneath a blue bandana that bound her mouth. She was underneath a yellow blanket soaked with blood. She had several stab wounds and blunt force trauma to the head. Authorities identified her head wound as being the result of being beaten with the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun. Law enforcement were able to determine that there was no sign of sexual assault. The third body found in the living room of this California cabin was that of family friend 17-year-old Dana Wingate. Her body was positioned face down on a pillow with her wrists and feet bound like the others. She was beaten with a hammer like John but also showed signs of strangulation. The weapons were left behind by those that wielded them. A hammer and a butcher knife were both next to the bodies. 
The walls were covered in knife stabs. Another kitchen knife was found badly bent. The only area outside of the main living room that had any sort of disturbance was the bedroom of 12-year-old Tina Sharp. Her bed was bloody, but there was no body to be found. There was blood everywhere, not only on the victims, but on the furniture, the doors, the ceilings, and the back steps. Sheila Sharp was the first one to enter the cabin after the crime around 7 a.m. the next morning. A neighbor, however, did find Rick, Greg, and Justin unharmed in a back bedroom of the cabin. What exactly happened on April 11, 1981? The police can only attempt to piece together the evidence. They closed the crime scene for six days, scouring the cabin for clues. Aside from the weapon, one of their leading clues was a shoe print found outside. Leading up to the murders on April 11, 1981, the Sharp family and a few friends were enjoying a typical Saturday in Kitty, California. The family had lived in Cabin 28 for just over a year after moving from Connecticut after a divorce. Sue was escaping an abusive marriage and moved with the kids across the country to the small town in the Sierra Nevada region. Sheila was sleeping over at a friend's house not too far away while John and Dana were hanging out in the nearby town of Quincy. The two were seen hitchhiking earlier that day. They returned in the evening and Dana stayed in the cabin with John and his family. Tina was with her older sister Sheila earlier in the day, but returned to the cabin by evening to go to sleep. Family friend Justin was also sleeping over with the Sharp family in their cabin. That night, Sue, John, Tina, Dana, Ricky, Greg, and Justin were all in cabin 28. Four of them were murdered, three were left unharmed, one was missing. There didn't seem to be any forced entry. The detectives found a set of fingerprints from a guardrail, but they were unidentified. The telephone was off the hook, the lights were off, and the drapes were closed. While at first it was believed the boys never saw or heard anything, Justin soon came forward claiming that he saw two men inside the cabin. He described one as having long hair and a mustache. The other man was clean-shaven with short hair. Both men had glasses, according to Justin's testimony. He also mentioned that one of the men was holding a hammer. Justin's testimony was derived from a form of hypnosis because he wasn't sure if his memories were real or a dream. He reveals that two men were with Sue. John and Dana entered the cabin and started arguing with the two men. Things escalated and a fight broke out. Justin claims that Tina woke up due to all the commotion and was taken outside by one of the men. He returned without her not long after. The sheriff, Sylvester Thomas, called in the Sacramento Department of Justice, who sent two special agents from the organized crime unit. Since these officers were not from a homicide unit, people were a little concerned about the process of the investigation. Aftermath The investigation of the case was handled poorly. Right after the murders, the two main suspects were the neighbor Martin Smart and a man named John Bodade. John, or Bo Bodade, was an ex-convict and mob enforcer staying with Martin, Justin's father. Bo had connections with the underground crime in the area, and drugs were reportedly found in Cabin 28. The night of the murder, both men were seen at a bar acting oddly. Martin told the police that his hammer was missing from his property. 
Later that year, a large knife was found in a trash can near the Keddie General Store and deemed officially connected to the crime. The hammer, Marty claimed, was missing, was found in 2016, in a pond just down the road from Cabin 28, which by this time had already been demolished. Investigators in 2016 believed it was placed there on purpose. In 1984, a man discovered a skull 30 miles from Keddie in Butte County. A kid's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, jeans, and an empty surgical tape dispenser were found near the same area. The Sheriff's Department from Butte County received an anonymous phone call shortly after the news broke that the remains were found. Quote, I was watching the news and they were talking about the girl found at Feather Falls, the caller said. I was just wondering if you thought of the murder up in Ketty, in Plumas County a couple years ago, where a 12-year-old girl was never found. The call was not initially investigated and instead was left in evidence until 2013. The tip regarding Tina's body was sealed until new investigators, Plumas Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg, became involved in the case. Gamberg reveals that, quote, we found evidence that was never brought forward by the officers in the Department of Justice, end quote. One of the suspects, Martin Smart, left town shortly after the killings and wrote a very suspicious note to his wife, Marilyn. His note read, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? At the time, the letter was not treated as evidence, nor was it followed up on during the time of the initial investigation. Marilyn claimed to have never received the letter, but she did recognize the handwriting and said it was her ex-husband's. In a 2008 interview, Marilyn says that she thought her husband was responsible for the murders, along with his friend, Bo. Sheriff Thomas claimed that Martin passed the polygraph test, which was why he was never taken into custody. Over time, it was revealed that Martin was believed to have been a close friend of Sheriff Thomas. Sheriff Thomas resigned from the investigation after just three months on the case. He left to take a position at the Sacramento Department of Justice. According to Sheila Sharp, quote, I was told the suspects were told to get out of town, so to me that means it was a cover-up, unquote. In 2016, Gamberg met with a counselor from Reno Veterans Administration. The counselor claimed that in May of 1981, Smart confessed to the killings of Sue and Tina. He told the counselor, quote, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. The Department of Justice dismissed these claims as hearsay. Another possible theory for motive behind the murders involves a love triangle between Sue, Martin, and Marilyn. Sue had allegedly been talking with Marilyn about the possibility of her leaving her husband because of his abusive behavior. When Martin discovered this, he enlisted his friend John to take Sue out of the picture. This fits with Marilyn reportedly leaving her husband on the day of the murder. This could also align with Martin's son, Justin, being spared that night. Gamberg believed that the murder could have been part of a large drug smuggling plot. He stated that the Department of Justice and Sheriff Thomas, quote, covered it up, alleging that Bo and Martin were involved in a larger drug smuggling scheme involving the federal government. Martin was known as a drug dealer, and Bo had connections with illegal drug activity in Chicago. It is suspected that involvement from the federal government was the reason why two corrupt agents from the organized crime unit was sent, instead of homicide detectives, 
It could also explain why both prime suspects were given the okay to leave town and were never fully interrogated or investigated. The case remains unsolved, but Sheriff Hagwood stated, It's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence, and the abduction of the little girl. He continued stating, We're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive. End quote. Both Martin Smart and Bo Bodade are dead. Smart died in 2008 and Bodade died all the way back in 1988. But new DNA evidence points to more people being involved in the murder than Smart and Bodade. Former Sheriff Thomas has since denied any connection to a cover-up, saying there was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody 35 or so years later have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them. According to Sheriff Hagwood in 2017, there are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we have identified some of them, and we know who they are and we know where they are, and I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have first-hand information. There are six people of interest. All six are still alive. Keddie was and remains to be a small town with a population of under 70 people. If the murder was committed by a member of the Keddie community, it would make sense that someone out there knows about the horrific circumstances of Cabin 28. In 2004, Cabin 28 was demolished. The investigation is still ongoing. If Marty Smart was the killer, then why was Justin not able to identify him in his testimony? Why had certain evidence that would have proved useful to solving the crime been covered up? Why were organized crime officers brought in on the case rather than homicide detectives? Who killed these four people? Hopefully soon, Sheila Sharp, along with her two younger brothers, can get some answers as to who destroyed their family and changed their lives forever. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode as we explored the Keddie Cabin Murders. I drop new episodes each week on Mondays, and you can find those episodes on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Podcast. If you want to support the show and help me keep the lights on in this place, you can go to my website, www.murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. I'll leave a link in the description. Until next time, be kind to yourselves and be good to each other.